At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Kim Ironman of Echo Beneficial to talk about her experience with ecological landscapes and native plants. Kim is an environmental horticulturist specializing in ecological landscapes and native plants. She is also the founder of Echo Beneficial, a horticulture communications and consulting company. Kim teaches at New York Botanical Garden, Brooklyn Botanical Garden, the Native Plant Center, and several other institutions. She is an active speaker on ecological gardening topics, presenting at industrial conferences, garden clubs, and nature centers. A certified horticulturist through the American Society of Horticultural Science, Kim is also a master gardener, master naturalist, an accredited organic land care professional, and a steering committee member of the Native Plant Center. And this is really cool. She received the 2014 and 2015 Silver Awards of Achievement from the Garden Writers Association. Congratulations on that, Kim, and welcome to the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. So I think everybody who finds their perfect career has probably had a miserable career at, at some point. <laughs> no and kidding. so my miserable career was on Wall Street. Um, oh. Yeah, the money was good, but it was not what really drove my um, my interests and my passion. And um, by getting downsized on Wall Street, I was able to just say, no, I'm not going back and to pursue what I loved, uh, which is ecological um, design and native plants. Nice. Nice. So what is ecological design? And we, we mentioned ecological landscapes above. Tell us, what what does that all mean? Well, so when you have a yard, you've got an ecosystem. A, an ecosystem can be a very small thing or it can be a very large thing, but we all have them. Uh-huh. Essentially, if you think of uh, giant food webs where every living thing is connected, where uh, birds are eating insects and insects are eating other insects, everything's in a big loop. And uh, that ecosystem oftentimes we completely ignore in our landscaping mm. practices. So ecological design really uh, looks at um, the natural functions in nature between plants and animals and tries to uh, recreate a healthier system. Sometimes our systems are really, really damaged. Sometimes uh, they're in better shape, but almost all the time we can do some improvement. And I like to tell folks that small changes in the way that we landscape can really make big environmental differences. Cool. So small changes like what? 
So here's the first obvious thing. Start to reduce your lawn. Uh-huh. Your lawn I call the um, the green desert because it's an ecological wasteland. Um, yeah. Very little uh, in, in terms of flora, fauna, utilize that green desert. These are exotic non-native grasses that pretty much came from Europe. Mm-hmm. don't really like being here. They demand a tremendous amount of inputs and they deliver very little to our environment. So starting to reduce the lawn in favor of native plants that support your local ecosystem is a good first step. So just start moving the bed lines forward. Um, start <laughs> eliminating. Keep the lawn that you really truly use, lose the rest. Nice. How do you do that? Well, like I said, it it can be as simple as taking a look at, say, your foundation plantings. And most houses have, you know, some sort of restricted area where you've got maybe six to eight feet of a bed line. Uh Start to push that forward and start to incorporate more plant material, more trees, more shrubs, more perennials, native grasses, always emphasizing native plants that have evolved with native species. Uh That's really, really important. So you, you you mentioned the word foundations planting. I, I don't want to lose well, track of that. Tell me more. Found, what, what is foundation that? Foundation planting are the, you know, typically the ugly big box store plants that we plunk around um, our houses. Uh-huh. <laughs> those are those referred to as foundation plantings. And most folks' yards, ex- you know, what they have in terms of plant material, foundation plantings, grass, and a few tall trees. But if you go out into nature and you look at natural remnants around you, if you have any, like a nature preserve, you'll see that that's not how healthy ecosystems work. There are a lot of layers in those systems. Even in in desert conditions, there Uh are always layers. They just look a little different. Yeah, exactly. Say a forested landscape. Yep. Perfect. So you you started a list when I said, you know, what can we do to kind Mm -hmm. of this transition and you, so yep. you started a list you said number one yep. so I'm going to take you up on your offer and say all right what's number two and number three okay. so number one was reduce your lawn right number number two really important is to try to eliminate pesticide use as much as possible oftentimes we treat what we think are pests which things that we think are problems but actually aren't problems at all and listeners might be familiar with uh, the monarch butterfly because of course they're in kind of big trouble now and uh, we've all learned over the last few years what most most folks didn't know which is that butterfly caterpillars eat plant leaves the vast majority of them yep and that chewing isn't damage it's actually nature doing its thing it's nature cycling so tolerating some more damage in your landscape understanding what damage you know really is and what is it is not and eliminating synthetic pesticides those chemical pesticides that can be extremely destructive Um, and if you're going to use pesticides at all try to favor organic pesticides that are what I call narrow spectrum that only treat the problem at hand don't kill everything else right well I know that in my business, I get a lot of questions from people. Oh my gosh, I got, and this is how the questions go. Oh my gosh, I got bugs on my plants. How do right. I treat them? Right. How do you, um, how do you answer that question? Well, here, I think um, context really helps. So yeah. in an average home landscape, uh, it's estimated that about 90% of the insects that we see mm-hmm. are either beneficial insects or benign insects. Right. So it's only about 10% that are the bad actors. So if we start to think about 
you know, tolerating insects, which are super important for our ecosystems, um, and only dealing with real you know, problem situations, then we're in a much better place. And then, of course, you know, if you're listeners who are growing a lot of food crops, you really want to be bringing in beneficial insects, mm-hmm. nature's predators, into your landscape, into your garden, into your farm or farmed in. And that you can accomplish with um, the planting of a lot of different species of native plants. That's always nice to build that biodiversity. So it's super important. Mm-hmm. M- might that, I'm, I'll prompt you a little bit here, might that be number three? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure, why not? Build Attract, biodiversity. Yeah, well, biodiversity and, and you know, keeping nature in balance. So um, yeah. biodiversity really does matter. And science has shown that biodiverse landscapes with a, um, a great diversity of different plant species, those landscapes are more resistant to pests and to diseases and to the impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, check, check, and check. We all have these issues that we're dealing with in our landscapes and thinking about planting diversely, but also planting sufficiently. So it's that time of year in the spring where a lot of people are running out to plant sales or going to the nursery, et cetera. And oftentimes people buy one of this, one of that, one of something else. Not a great practice really think about planting in masses or having a repetition of the plant. Make it easier uh, for pollinators and uh, beneficial insects to find the, those plants. Great so plant point. diversely but sufficiently. Yeah, so don't just plant one, plant 10. Right. That's what and I, if you if you don't have the room to plant a whole bunch altogether, uh-huh. think about how meadows work. Meadows are quite oh, random yeah. in their in the plant material, and you can mimic that in your own landscape. And essentially, the pollinators will be able to find that particular species of plant throughout your landscape. Um, some of um, our pollinators actually have what what's called floral constancy, where oh. they go out on each foraging mission for one particular species at a time. Uh-huh. So make it easier for them. Nice. So you mentioned pastures and how pastures work? Meadows. Mm -hmm. Meadows. Okay. Meadows. I I got chills going all the way down to my toes when you said that because I've recently started converting my backyard lawn Mm -hmm. to a meadow. Cool. Yeah. It's been, it's really cool. I I actually dug out part of it. Uh, I took the, I actually removed the Bermuda lawn and planted some things, but then in the places that I didn't remove, I just threw seeds in there. Mm -hmm. I figured we'll see what happens. Right. Well, you're you're replacing the green desert, which is a great thing to do. And meadow, I call these meadowscapes, or in midwestern areas, western areas, they can you you term them prairie scapes. They can, they're a little different in terms of the plant composition, uh-huh. but that's a great alternative to lawn and very low maintenance after you establish it. So a key to a successful meadow or prairie is to um, really prepare the site well. Mm. So making sure that you're eliminating not only the turf but any weeds uh-huh. and planting thickly with native plants that fill in but it, it can take um if you're doing it from seed it'll take a little bit longer right if you're using live plants it'll be a little bit shorter but you know you're going to look for two or three years before a meadow or prairie really looks like uh, what yeah. you envision uh-huh so, so be patient so okay good and so you're suggesting that i actually remove the bermuda grass then absolutely because if you just interplant with that lawn you know you're going to be driving yourself nuts trying to <laughs> look that grass out in between right. the plants you want to keep yeah. yeah all right cool fantastic so given that we're talking to urban farmers can you tell us how urban farmers can boost their ecosystems absolutely so um 
most of the crops that we grow are annual, right? And right. That in itself is is kind of an inherent problem for nature because nature doesn't decide when the first cold fall day hits and there's a frost that they're leaving. They really need structure and they need um, plant material um, throughout all the seasons. Uh-huh. So making sure that you're providing some of that structure in your landscape, and I'm really thinking primarily about native trees and shrubs. So thinking about having that structure, not just those annual crops is super important. Now, if you're growing uh, fruits or vegetables, you're thinking about pollinators. And, you know, some of Mm -hmm. the crops that we grow at home or in, you know, urban landscapes, even though they may not require an animal pollinator, many of these crops can benefit Mm -hmm. in terms of increased yield from an animal pollinator. So making sure that we have resources, foragers, i.e. nectar and pollen, uh-huh. Throughout the entire growing season is going to be real important. Early spring can be very tough. Early spring, some of our native bees start to emerge. Mm-hmm. Honeybees are going to be emerging when it's 50 degrees or more. And there can be darn little on, say, uh, a cold um, March day in early spring. Uh-huh. So some of the um, plants that we can uh, introduce into our landscapes are early flowering trees and shrubs uh-huh. that have pollen and nectar or one of the other resources for these pollinators. Oh, for the pollinators, exactly. Things we don't even think about. Mm-hmm. Here's an example. Please. Red maple. Would you believe that red maple is a really important early plant for bees? Oh. It, there are a lot of things we don't even think about. Pussy willows. Another one. Super uh-huh. early important source of the nectar and pollen for um, for some of our bees. Uh-huh. So making sure that you have a sequence of bloom from early spring through late fall in temperate parts of the country and for the more subtropical uh-huh. parts of the country you, you know you're looking to cover the entire uh, 12 months 12, yeah, something exactly. that's in bloom for pollinators yeah. i was laughing a minute ago because when you were talking about you know cold marches uh most m- most years here in phoenix arizona by march we're in our 90s yeah so you're <laughs> so. in a you're in a you know in an area where you've got a much longer growing season your planting season's much different but you know just make sure that um, if a bee's coming by you want to make sure there's a resource got in something. your garden yeah so this is really great i've been gardening for 41 years here in phoenix and, you know, I know pollinators are important, but I never stopped to think about, well, what if I planned a year garden where there was always a pollinator in the garden? Because we can right. do that here. Absolutely. And you've got some really cool pollinators that we don't have here in, in New York where I'm located. You've right. got bat pollinators, for example. And and that's something that folks need to think about, too. It's not just about bees. Pollinators uh-huh. can include all sorts of things. Moths are pollinators. Oh, Butterflies um, are more incidental pollinators. Um, they're not super important. But wasps, we have some pollinating flies. I was going to say flies. Bats, other, um, some birds, hummingbirds, just one example. And trying to provide resources for all of these creatures that are indigenous to your region, super right. important. Well, and I, I've heard that ants are also pollinators. Ants, some ants can be pollinators that, you know, we have so many creatures that um, are important to our ecosystems. And if we start thinking about them and what they need, they need not only food, but they need habitat too. Mm, So we have many bees, uh, native bees that are great pollinators. In the United States, we have about 4,000 species of um, native bees. Whoa. And folks usually just think about the European honeybee. Honeybee, right. 
we've got all these other you know bees that can be really great pollinators and the majority of them uh, are ground esters the majority of them nest in bare soil or lightly vegetated soil oh interesting keeping some of those areas of bare soil around your um, landscape in full sun creates um, an opportunity for habitat. Some of those native bees um, are uh, stem nesters or nesters of things like old beetle burrows or mouse holes, um, cavity oh, nesters. Wow. So it's not just about providing uh, nectar and pollen, it's providing habitat too. Yeah, perfect. So, and this goes to your, your point number two, eliminate pesticide use, because when we eliminate pesticide use, that does what for us? Right. And, um, you know, we, we obviously want to encourage insects. And here's, here's a little tidbit of, of information that would be interesting probably to listeners. Terrestrial birds, about 96% of land birds feed insects to their young, even oh. though a lot of those species don't eat insects when they're adults. So if you want songbirds in your landscape, you got a garden for insects. Oh, nice. Insects, yeah, and they're part of the big food web. So if you're spraying a lot of pesticides around and those birds are picking up contaminated insects, um, you're basically guaranteeing that they're not going to have successful fledglings. Mm -hmm. Wow, cool. So any tips on supporting pollinators on our farms? So that succession of bloom that I mentioned, right. um, depending on where you're located, where you are, it's going to be you know your round target. Really trying to think about yeah. doing round in more uh, moderate parts of the country where we get cold weather. We're thinking about typically early spring through late fall. Really important, mm -hmm. but also having a diversity of native plants with different flower shapes and sizes. Ooh. Why? Because our native bees and other animal pollinators really vary in their length of their tongue, the size and strength oh, right. of their body, uh -huh. etc. Not all pollinators can access the same flowers. Mm -hmm. So we want some flowers that have what we call an umbiliverous head, kind of an umbrella-like shape with little tiny flowerettes oh, right. that little pollinators can access. And um, some of our bigger flowered um, uh, plants, well, I'll just give you an example, like hummingbirds mm -hmm. uh, pollinate a lot of plants, right? And they like long yeah. tubular flowers, yep. typically red, not always. And so they're going to have a different ability than, than a tiny little pollinator, like a, a fly, a pollinating fly, for example. Mm -hmm. Cool. So beneficials, beneficial insects. Those are insects that we want in our yard. And I have, right. a, and I have a quick story I want to tell, and you can kind of address the story. So I get this uh, email picture, uh, you know, a photograph in my email box, and it's this gnarly-looking orange uh, guy about a dime size and, you know, he looks very prehistoric. And the uh, question in the email was, how do I kill this guy? <laughs> probably don't want to kill him, do we? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So we, we have an insect um, on the East Coast we, we call a wheel bug. And uh -huh. it's a, it, it looks like a little miniature dinosaur kind of thing with yep. this gnarly looking ridge on its back. Yep. It's scary looking. And it has a proboscis, a tongue that it flips up. And it pierces the insect that it wants mm -hmm. to essentially eat, like, say, a Japanese beetle. And it pierces it with that uh, proboscis, liquefies its insides, and sucks up its insides um, like, you know, its tongue is a straw. Right. And um, it sounds pretty gruesome, but, I mean, this is how nature works. Yeah, and we exactly. want to encourage those insects to do their job. Right. So what kind of beneficials are there out there that we want to encourage? 
Um, well, that would be one. Um, there are many different ones. Lady beetles, uh, also known as ladybugs, are uh-huh. one that probably very well known to uh, to your listeners. And when they are in their larval stage, they are ex- extremely efficient um, consumers of mm-hmm. aphids. Oh, yes. Um, lace wings are uh, another insect that people might know of that are really very useful. And um, we have a lot of predatory um, wasps, which oh, yes. uh, folks don't always right. realize. And they will actually lay their eggs on, on the body of, uh, say, a caterpillar mm-hmm. and let their young um, essentially feast on that live caterpillar until the caterpillar dies. So it's nature and balance. It's kind of understanding all these um, fine um, associations that uh-huh. exist in nature and allowing them to happen instead of trying to kill them all. Yeah, exactly. Kind of working in the flow of nature. Mm-hmm. So talking about native edibles uh, for our urban farms, that that in a lot of cases is weeds? Certainly could be. A right. lot of introduced European weeds uh-huh. are edible. Um, but that, you know, of course, that they're really not native. But we have we have a lot of actually showy native plants, mm-hmm. uh, depending on where you're located in the country, right. that are fully edible. Yeah. You know, everybody knows blueberries, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, we don't even think about what else blueberries do except feed us. But it turns out that our native bumblebees are the best pollinators of blueberry plants. Oh, wow. So if you've got acidic soil, a requirement uh-huh. with blueberries, by the way, and if you don't have acidic soil in your landscape, plant them in containers and you can manipulate the soil that way. Mm-hmm. But we have many things like that. We have native huckleberries, for example, depending on which coast you live on. If you're on the West Coast, you're really, really lucky because those native huckleberries are delicious. They're not oh, wow. as good, the species here on the East Coast, but mm-hmm. they're not bad. Right. But we have lots of brambles, including blackberries, uh, black mm-hmm. raspberries, mm-hmm. Um, all those wonderful things. And then some lesser known plants. One plant that's quite popular on uh, essentially eastern part of the country are service berries, also known as June berries. Oh. And they're either large shrubs or small trees, depending on the species. Uh-huh. And they um, they have an early flowering time, typically in April, so they have an early bloom for early pollinators, right. followed by berries in June, hence the name Juneberry. Ah. And the antioxidant value of those berries is much higher than that of blueberries. And they're really great. You can just pick them right off the tree or the shrub uh-huh. and put them in your cereal and eat away. Oh, nice. And as much as we love them, a lot of fruiting birds, birds absolutely too. adore them. I'll bet. So that's a really nice example. We have um, things like native persimmons, mm. and there are different species across the country. They, they don't look like the persimmons that you get from Costco, right? Right. They're much smaller, and the trees are really pretty. The trees have a checkerboard-like bark. They get fairly tall, but they mostly branching up in the upper canopy. They're very, they don't have a lot of low branches, so they're easy to tuck into a landscape, even an urban one. Uh-huh. When fall comes around here and it gets a little frosty, uh, the sugars concentrate in those fruits and you want to eat them when they're mushy, which sounds kind of weird, but that's the best time to eat them. Yeah. We have a plant called pawpaw. Oh, yes. Is um is fully edible. Looks kind of like a tropical big-leaved plant. It grows in colonies, so if you plant one, don't be surprised when it starts to spread a bit. Mm-hmm. And they're beautiful disease-resistant uh, trees that produce kind of a fruit that looks a little bit like a small mango, and it has oh. a banana custard-like flavor, fully, you know, fully edible to us. Nice. But um, where you are, you know, you've got prickly pear cactus. Yes, we do. And you can eat the pads with 
uh, I will admit, some serious cleaning because you got to be yep. really careful not to eat the spines. Right. But, you know, uh, listeners might have had nopales, you know, those pads in yep. a Mexican restaurant, for example. Right. And then, of course, the pickly, prickly pear fruit is mm-hmm. fully edible, too. So we have a, we have a, a huge number of, um, of these edibles. And even here on the East Coast, we have a native prickly pear cactus, which uh, blows people's minds because they can't believe we actually have that. But we do. And they're wonderful fruits. Yeah. They're They're fully edible. Yeah. They're absolutely wonderful fruit. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, and the reason I mentioned the edible weeds is because there are so many edible weeds that just kind of, you know, they're pioneer species. They show up first and they just travel across my yard like purslane Mm -hmm. and lamb's quarters and... yeah. Yeah. And most of those are are introduced European weeds yeah. that were actually brought over here intentionally by settlers, by colonists. And a lot of them are edible. But, you know, you want to be careful not to eat stuff that's right by the roadside. You want to pick right. up any heady metals or pollutants. Yep. You got to be a little bit careful about that. Perfect. Great, great point. Thank you for saying that. So where can our listeners get more information about this? Yep. Well, please um, feel free to visit my website, mm-hmm. which is www.ecobeneficial.com. And I'm actually happy to answer listeners' questions. If you want to email me at, at Kim, Kim at ecobeneficial.com, I'd be happy to answer questions. I, uh, like you, I, I actually have a podcast. I do some video oh, nice. tips, do a lot of writing, um, and um, really like to entertain readers' questions. So feel free to get in touch. Nice. Nice. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you a little bit, and I want to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, relative to what we're talking about today, I guess I would have to say it was the first time I really killed a plant. (laughs) (laughs) There's been... Um, uh, Moving into a house for the first time, having parents who really weren't that interested in gardening. I really didn't grow up knowing all this stuff. Uh And I thought, well, gosh, I can do this. And and of course, you know, bought something that was beautiful and managed to kill it in a matter of of weeks. Mm. And (laughs) it, it taught me that I really need to understand more about plants and what they need instead of trying to force them where they perhaps don't want to be. Right. And that whole idea of the right plant in the right place is something that we need to keep in mind as we garden and landscape. And I I learned that lesson well. Perfect. Perfect. So what do you consider your biggest success? That would have to be getting out of Wall Street and into horticulture. (laughs) And oh, bless you. Yes, absolutely. Really following my passion and being able to share with others, you know, my love for this and, uh-huh. and really trying to, to educate and inspire folks to, to just change their gardening and landscaping a little bit to improve our environment. So in, in our the first part of this conversation, you said that you got downsized from Wall Street. Yep. Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration behind you going into horticulture? Well, see, I was already very active as a volunteer uh, in horticulture, and also I was taking courses at night and on the weekends at places like the New York Botanical Garden, Uh where where I now teach. And so it it was a passion I already had, and you know, even as a young kid, I was really into nature. I was one of those kids that went to Outward Bound and went to Mm. National Outdoor Leadership School, and I was just a real outdoors kid and love nature. So the writing was on the wall. <laughs> How far can you track it back? I know for me, I can go back to at least four, when I was 14. Oh, uh, earlier than that. I yeah. mean, I can remember, you know, like trying to get a berry that was stuck in a bird's throat out of its um, throat uh, with a dandelion stem when I was probably like, I don't know, five or six. Wow. Yeah. I was really into nature. Yeah. Cool. And it's it's so cool that you honor that. You're honoring that and, and you know, you're making a 
difference in the world about it. So good for you. Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. So what drives you? When people say to me, you know, I never really thought about that before. You really inspired me to do things uh-huh. a little bit differently. Uh-huh. That that just encouraged me. Encourages me. <laughs> it it kind of lights the fire. It's like, oh, I want right, to do that exactly. more, right? And when I have clients, I do a lot of consulting. I do um, in-person consulting and actually virtual consulting online too for clients. And occasionally I get you know an email. I have a, an older gentleman right now who's a client who last year I put in a massive um, amount of work on his landscape with native plants. Mm-hmm. And he emailed me and he said, you know. I thought you did a lot of work last year, maybe a little too much, but now I really appreciate what you did because I see so much life in my landscape. I see the, the, the bees, I see the birds, I see the butterflies, and I just love it. Yeah. And to me, that, that, that meant a lot. Yeah. So you, you do a lot of these kind of jobs, yes? Oh, yes. Tell me a really, really cool story about one of your jobs. Really? Oh, I have a new project that's um, fascinating. So Uh where I'm located, I'm in Westchester County, New York. So um, we're just 16 miles north of Midtown Manhattan. It's it's pretty compact. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And so our quote-unquote natural areas, there are not so many of them around here. Uh And I got contacted by someone who was referred to me and said, I think I have something um, on my property that's, that's valuable. He described it and I said, well, you know, you've got a vernal pool. And what a vernal pool is, it's a temporary wetland mm-hmm. that you probably have none in, in Arizona. No, actually we do. <laughs> but, so uh, when you said when you said that, it was I got chills because when I was younger, maybe 35 years ago, okay. I used to go visit them after the rains in the summertime. And it's amazing I, the amount of life that shows up. It, yes. So a vernal pool is a temporary wetland that typically um, is formed in a depression in the woods, often mm-hmm. in a forested area, and is filled by a combination of snow and or rainwater. Uh-huh. Fills up in the late winter um, into the spring, continues to be wet typically into the early summer, and then by later summer, it's completely dry. It may actually fill again in the fall. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think, well, so what? You know, that's just a nuisance. Let's fill it in. Well, it turns out that a number of species are completely dependent on that particular ecosystem. Mm -hmm. They can't survive without it. They use these vernal pools as breeding grounds. Things like the spotted salamander, the Jefferson salamander, the wood frog, species that we're losing at a rapid clip because these ecosystems are vanishing. So this new client has this fantastic, and it's a pretty good size vernal pool in his backyard that he shares with neighbors. And he engaged me to try to educate and inspire the neighbors to save it and improve um, the health of that ecosystem. Wow. To me, that's that's about as exciting. Uh, I'll say. Yeah. So I'm I'm very charged up about it. Well, and there's. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. There's crustaceans that grow show up there too, isn't there? Uh, there there are these little things called fairy shrimp. That I are, knew that's what you were going to say. Yeah, these little tiny critters, and um, there are many other species that might use a vernal pool, like uh-huh. spring peepers and uh, some turtle species, etc. but they don't require it. So what's exciting to me is actually trying to save species that must have vernal pools in order to exist. Right. So I'm trying to get you know the group of neighbors to um, really embrace this as their ecosystem project and be proud of what they have and save it. Yeah, I and when I was younger, I've been in this very very long time. I used to uh, go do research. You know, I was in my early 20s around fairy shrimps in the vernal pools here in the state because we have a thriving population of them out in the desert. 
that's extraordinary. Oh, it is. It's so cool. <laughs> and, the, you know, they, they live their entire life cycle in like three to four weeks. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How cool is that? <laughs> so I'm all about education. I have to know, is there one book that has really inspired you in this process? If you'll bear with me, there are three. Perfect. And I often refer to these as the seminal books that have inspired us to think differently about our environment. Uh -huh. The first book is Silent Spring by oh, Rich yes. Carson in 1962, yep. who really raised a red flag about DDT and pesticide use. We had a really hard time hearing that message all these decades later. The uh -huh. uh, second book uh, is Noah's Garden by Sarah Stein, who um, actually was a rest, uh, resident of Westchester here, not too far from me, and wrote about the observations she made in her own landscape and started to understand what native plants really did to support the ecosystem and, and changed her gardening practices. And the third book would be Bringing Nature Home uh, by Dr. Doug Tallamy, a fantastic guy. He's an entomologist from the University of Delaware who is a specialist in Lepidoptera, butterflies, skippers, and moths, mm -hmm. who started to address these interactions and that um, wrote about, about this eloquently. And for listeners who might be interested, I have um, a series of, of interviews, um, video interviews with Dr. Tallamy on my website, uh, egobeneficial.com. Nice. Nice. Cool. Thank you. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I, I guess my advice would be just start small. Mm -hmm. Don't be overwhelmed by trying to reinvent your landscape in a day, a week, or a month. Start small and learn about some of these plants by joining your Native Plant Society. Every state, all, almost every state has a Native Plant Society and they're just uh, you know, just filled with great information. Mm -hmm. And use resources like the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. Oh my gosh, their of course. Native plant database. And you can do a search plants in your state and filter by particular attributes, your soil type, et cetera, and get a pretty good list. But just um, look at this as, as, um, as a gift that you have. Learning about this stuff enables you to really enhance the environment around you and make a difference. And you will make that difference for generations to come. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experience with us, Kim. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, I know you mentioned it before, but how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yep. Um, please feel free to visit the website, which is www.ecobeneficial.com. And if you've got a question, email me at kim at ecobeneficial.com. I'm going to just spell that. It's E-C-O-B-E-N-E-F-I-C-I-A-L. That's it. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.